begin a four-part series this morning during Advent. This four-part series will, once again, correlate with what our children are doing. And we're going to focus on four key words throughout this series. We're going to take a word a week. We're going to look at hope. We're going to look at peace. We're going to look at joy. And we're going to look at love. These are words that are important for us to consider These are important words for our children to learn about as well. But these words alone seemingly miss something. Therefore, you will notice in the sermon title, even today in the weeks following, it won't simply be a focus on hope, but we're going to look at hope this morning in the midst of darkness. We're going to look at peace in the midst of hostility. We're going to look at joy in the midst of sorrow, and we're going to look at love in the midst of hate or indifference. You see, the season of Advent is a season which is intentionally held in tension. It is a time that is in between things. And preachers talk about this often. I've been enlightened myself over the last few years of my life to understand more clearly what Advent really is and what it really means, and the truth is, it's a little bit of a downer. If we really understand biblically and historically in the church, in reality, it's important for us to understand that Advent has with it a real sense of longing, and a real sense of aching, and a real sense, as we'll see this morning, of darkness. And it's hard for us to grapple with that because we're excited. And it's understandable that we would want to take cues from the culture for us to understand what Christmas really is. And you can understand the predicament that I might be in here this morning, understanding more deeply the biblical view of Advent, while at the same time appreciating and understanding a cultural view of Christmas or Advent, and trying to stand in the bridge between these two things to help encourage and instruct and lead you in a proper and biblical understanding of Advent, while at the same time not shaming you or myself for enjoying the cultural things at Christmas, right? To not come in and give Advent to you like medicine because it's good for you. But I really do want us to understand this because I think the more fully we understand what Advent really is, the more truly we will really embrace these ideas of hope and peace and love and joy. But it puts a preacher in a predicament. I've got a friend who's a preacher that talked about a church experience that he had where the church, I know out of goodwill, was really seeking to institute a biblical and historical view of Advent, but the way that that was reflected, at least in his terms, and he tends to be a little hyperbolic, but he would say things like, I mean, we don't even sing Christmas songs during Christmas. We've got to wait until Christmas Eve to even sing a Christmas song. And he would go on and on, because technically there is a difference between Advent songs and Christmas songs. And this church was seeking to really walk that fine line and implement, but my friend was so frustrated. Meanwhile, my friend was an avid partaker and season pass holder at Dollywood 
And so he would go to Dollywood in November, and he would have Christmas as far as the eye could see. And so he used to get frustrated. He's like, I can't even celebrate Christmas at my church. Meanwhile, Dollywood gets Christmas more than my church gets Christmas. I know what he was saying. I know where the church is coming from. I know where Dollywood's coming from. And here we are in this tension, in this juxtaposition. What do we do? Well, today, I'm going to try with encouragement, yet also with biblical accuracy and hope to lead us beginning today into this, really, arguably, the most important season throughout the church calendar, this season of Advent. I have been aided greatly in my mind and then also encouraged in my heart by a book that I'm reading by an Episcopal priest right now. Her name is Fleming Rutledge, and her book is simply entitled Advent. It's most recently published, and I would encourage you to get it. However, it's become so popular, and the publisher did not plan for how popular it would be that you can't get a copy until after Christmas, so it can bless you next Advent. Of course, the Kindle version is available. Her name is Fleming Rutledge, and the book is entitled Advent, and I want to turn your attention to the first reflection at the front of your bulletin before we read the scripture for today, and hear her reflect on what I'm trying to say about this season and the importance of understanding what it really is. Since the Advent season has been so closely linked to Christmas over the years, it may be startling to hear that Advent is not simply a transitional season, but in and of itself communicates a message of immense, even ultimate importance. Of all the seasons of the church year, Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church, asks the most important ethical questions, presents the most accurate picture of the human condition, and above all, orients us to the future of the God who will come again. That makes me want to dig in. Stand, if you will, to Isaiah, to hear the reading of God's Word from Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him shall you honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem." And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? 
to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to His word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Emily and I married in 2002, and as you know, there's a lot that leads up to the wedding day. There's a lot of details to take place. There's a lot of formation relationally that's taking place, and there's just a lot that's going on in the midst of this season of engagement, pre-marriage. And so one of the details that you have to take care of, an important detail, are the different elements for the service, right? The, the wedding service itself. And there are a long, there is a long list of things to do for that particular service. Well, one of the things that most people put on that list is getting flowers. And that's something that we are very excited to do during this time because we really love flowers and we love the presence of beauty uh, through God's creation that can be formed into these arrangements during a ceremony. And so, of course, in order to get flowers, you've got to go to a flower shop. And so we were excited to do this. It's something we'd been looking forward to for a while. And we got married in St. Louis, and we were sitting in a flower shop in St. Louis picking out our flowers. And as we were doing that, and as we were thinking about with joy and beauty, the flowers that would represent the ceremony for us, our hearts at the same time were filled with sadness. You see, we got married in August of 2002, and unfortunately, Emily's younger, younger brother passed away in July of 2002. And so literally, while we were sitting in one flower shop in St. Louis picking out flowers for our wedding, her family was in another flower shop picking out flowers for his funeral. I'll never get over that moment and that experience that I often refer to in my own mind as the world of two flower shops. That's something we specifically experienced. The reality is we all live in a world of two flower shops. We all live in a world where there is presence of beauty... And there's also the presence of brokenness. We live in a world where there is glory, and we live in a world where there is suffering. We live in a world where there are blessings, and we live in a world where there are battles. We live in a world of light, yet we also live in a world of dark. Another way of saying it is we live in tension. We live in a season that is between. We live in the already and the not yet. Even as Christians, redemption has already come in the person of Christ through His first coming. Yet, we still live in the presence of our brokenness and the brokenness of the world where that redemption has not yet come fullness in its fullness. 
And so Advent is this season in between where we do celebrate the first coming, but we have to know this. Advent is as much about the second coming as it is the first coming. And this might be new to you. Honestly, it's newer to me to understand this reality more fully. That Advent is a season of tension. Advent is a season of the already not yet. Advent is a season of celebrating Christ's first coming and longing for His second coming. So the question before us this morning, particularly from Isaiah chapter 8, who represents a people, who represents a people living in tension, who represents a people of darkness and light, beauty and brokenness, glory and suffering, who represents a people who were faithful within the community of Israel and a people who were unfaithful in the community of Israel. It's a community of tension. It's a community of already not yet. It's a community of beauty and brokenness, of glory and suffering. It's a community in Isaiah 8 of tension. And so what did Isaiah do in the midst of this community in existence of tension? What did Isaiah do metaphorically while he lived in the midst of two flower shops? What do we do? Well, I think we can take our lead from Isaiah in an overarching way. What we see Isaiah doing personally in Isaiah 8, and the way we see Isaiah leading those who are faithful in Isaiah 8 in the midst of a tenuous world, in the midst of a tenuous environment, we see Isaiah doing one thing primarily, hoping in the Lord, waiting on God. That's the overarching principle that I want us to take from Isaiah 8 this morning. As we live in a world of tension, Isaiah 8 calls us to hope in the midst of darkness. Isaiah 8 calls us to wait for the Lord. There's two prominent Hebrew words for hope in the passage of Isaiah 8, and it's pretty cool, actually, your children will be learning these words this morning through this fantastic video series called The Bible Project that you need to check out yourselves. They will be learning this morning from them. And they, like we, will see that the two words in Isaiah 8 for hope are yakal and kavah. And they mean literally to wait in tension with patience. Biblical hope in Isaiah 8 means fundamentally to wait in tension with patience. And we see Isaiah personally doing that, and we see Isaiah leading his people to hope and to wait in the Lord, to practice Yakal and Kavah. However, this is challenging for us because we lose hope. We get tempted on one hand to despair because it's just too easy to live by sight. And that really is where the cultural Christmas falls short. Because as much as we see that which glitters, as much as we see that which shines, as much as we see through advertising, etc., all is merry and bright. The problem is, we're not. 
and this world's not. And there's a rub. And in fact, that rub rubs so thin that we just despair and we become impatient and we lose hope. There's another error that we do when we come to this call to hope, and that is to be simply optimistic. And while on the one hand, this might seem like the super spiritual high road, this road of empty optimism leaves us as empty as despairing. It's important for us to understand what biblical hope really is. Fleming Rutledge says this, we need to understand the difference between optimism and hope. Optimism often arises out of a denial of the real facts. Hope, however, persists in spite of the clearly recognized facts because it is anchored in something beyond. This time of the church year is fundamentally about hope. You see, the biblical understanding of hope is not wishful thinking. It's a guaranteed expectation. Even in the next chapter when Isaiah in chapter 9 speaks about hope, he uses the past tense as if this has already happened. And that's not optimism. That's biblical hope. One preacher says it like this, good news of great joy did not remove God's people from the fallen world. Hope is not a trite thing. For true hope to exist It must process the guts to go head to head with that which threatens it. For true hope to exist, he says, it must have the courage and the guts to go head to head with what threatens it. Well, let's look at what threatens hope. If Isaiah in chapter 8 is primarily calling us to hope in God, how do we do that? We do that in two ways. One, by accepting the darkness, and two, by anticipating the dawn. We hope in the Lord by accepting the darkness, by going head-to-head with that which threatens hope. It's darkness. And then also, we anticipate the dawn. I want to spend a little more time on darkness than I do the dawn this morning, just for those of you that care. And the first thing I want us to see about hoping in the Lord is that not only must we accept the darkness, we must understand that the, season, that the season of Advent begins in the dark. Rutledge once again says, it requires courage to look into the heart of darkness, especially when we are afraid, it might, especially when we are afraid that we might see ourselves there. The authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. Advent begins in the dark. Joseph Conrad understood something of darkness when he wrote his classic book, The Heart of Darkness. Our own Cormac McCarthy, one of the greatest writers of the English language, at least in the last hundred years, former resident of Knoxville, Tennessee, understands darkness. If you've ever read anything by McCarthy, you understand that he understands darkness. He accepts darkness. And if we want to understand what it means to hope in the Lord, we must understand darkness. 
We must understand what the Avett brothers understand when they write, there is a darkness upon me that's flooded in light. In the fine print, they tell me what's wrong and what's right. And it comes in black and it comes in white. And I'm frightened by those who don't see it. In their song, Head Full of Doubt. If we've ever paid attention in more detail to our beloved Christmas hymns and carols, it's almost impossible to miss that these historic hymns that conjure up such great feelings and nostalgia, and even optimism in our own hearts are actually in and of themselves pretty dark. Have you noticed that? Even this morning as we were singing the songs that we put before you, I had a pen ready just to circle words in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, like morning, death's dark shadows, discord, and misery. Merry Christmas. Or in the other one that we sang this morning, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, talking about tasting sadness. Isaiah tasted sadness. God's people tasted sadness. You taste sadness. And God knows that. Maybe it's most poignant, and it came upon a midnight clear, verse 3. O ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, look now for glad and golden hours, come swiftly to the wing, O rest beside the weary road, and hear the angels sing. See, it's not just preachers, it's not just me trying to reign on the parade of Christmas, it's us collectively looking at the truth in Scripture, looking at the truth in these hymns. I thought about recently, just this, as in this week, the idea of this reality in these hymns and these historic carols that really capture this idea of darkness. And then I was talking to a friend, and I said, you know, you juxtapose that with things like, have yourself a merry little Christmas, which is sung about having our troubles being far away. And then he said, actually... Do you know the origin of that song? And I said, no, but I'm about to find out. So the song was released in 1943 for the movie Meet Me in St. Louis with Judy Garland, which is written in the context of World War II, which the film itself is grappling with the reality not only of the war, but a family having to move from St. Louis to New York And Judy Garland sings the song in the film as an older sister to her younger sister in tears as she's grappling with the sadness of a broken world and the reality of having to move. And in fact, the original author, Ralph Martin, of the song wrote this as the first verse. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year we will all be living in the past. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Pop that champagne cork. Next year, we may all be living in New York. And Judy Garland protested, saying, I cannot sing that. I will not sing that. So he rewrote it. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Next year, all our troubles 
will be miles away. But then the writer of The Atlantic, or from the magazine The Atlantic that was writing about this says, it's a cheerier perspective for sure, but there's still a lingering sense of melancholy in this song, which manifests in the film when Esther's sister responds to the song by running outside in her nightgown and smashing all the snowmen she's crafted in the front yard. The song also held special resonance for the American soldiers fighting in Europe when the movie came out and Garland sang it live at the Hollywood Canteen, a club for servicemen on their way overseas. There's a particular sadness in the lines Garland sings at the end of the song, implying both loss and the wartime obligation to endure. Someday soon we will all be together if the fates allow. Until then, we'll all have to muddle through somehow. So even they got it. Even the song that seemingly is cheery and bright actually is cheery and bright to some degree only because it courageously looks at the darkness. We can really only have waiting and hoping if we courageously look at the darkness. The men and women in Isaiah 8 were in great rebellion against truth. They did not, the text tells us, they did not fear God. They did not look to God. They did not listen to God. They did not inquire of God. So much so that they inquired of other spiritual counselors and directors called mediums. And as a result of them not fearing God, as a result of them not hoping in God, as a result of them not waiting, as a result of their impatience and their rebellion, the text tells us that they were distressed and hungry, living in the midst of darkness. Do we accept the darkness? Do we see their darkness? Do we see our own darkness? Because we have to conclude this morning, right, that darkness is not just out there. But if we really want to understand Advent, if we really want to understand the coming of Christ, we must embrace and understand the darkness that resides in here, and even more specifically, the darkness that resides in here. You see, God's Old Testament people aren't the only ones that had a problem with dark rebellion. You and I have a problem with dark rebellion. And it's important for us to understand contextually in this passage, these people that were walking in darkness, these people that were creating darkness, these people that were walking in rebellion, hear this, were identified externally as God's people. They professed to be God's people with their mouths, but their hearts clearly were far from the Lord. They were secularized. They were politicized. They had made a religion nationalistic. And Isaiah says, as a result of this type of rebellion and misunderstanding of God's truth, you are experiencing distress and hunger and despair, and darkness. And as a result of that type of brokenness, Isaiah himself, and even the faithful remnant of Israel too at this time, are experiencing the effects of this darkness. And Isaiah 8 is spoken as a word of warning. A 
word of warning to examine our own hearts and our own selves. If we really want to understand and hope in the Lord and to wait on the Lord, part of accepting the darkness is, for one, being willing to accept the sadness and the brokenness that exist in the world and not try to be overly and glibly optimistic about it. But also accepting the darkness is what I just said, accepting our own darkness and being challenged in our own lives. Do I just simply profess with my lips but not possess with my heart? It's a challenge. It's a word of warning. Do, this would be a good question to ask. Do we really fear the Lord? And through our fearing, do we obey Him? Do we walk in His ways? And actually, a telltale characteristic of people that are really God's people. So theologians talk about all Israel was not really Israel. There's this idea of external circumcision and circumcision of the heart. Right? There's this idea of professing but not possessing. You know the main distinction between these two groups of people that both identified as God's people? It's pretty simple. Repentance. And that's good news. You see, repentance is what designates Israel from the real Israel. Repentance is what designates nationalistic, politicized, secular Israel from the real Israel. Of course, this begs the question, are we repentant? Do we practice faith? Do we own our own darkness and do we look to God in the midst for hope, in the midst of our own sin and brokenness? Before we move into anticipating the dawn, a quote from a commentator. There has been a marked sharpening of the demarcation between the faithful and the unfaithful within the visible community of God's people, between those who respond to the word of God with obedient faith and those who do not, between the true and the false. This should not surprise us, for the Bible never confuses formality with actuality. It's a great line. The Bible never confuses formality with actuality. Mere participation in the externals with the heart response, which alone can make those externals meaningful. The line that was being drawn in Isaiah's day is still being drawn today with the same ultimate issues at stake. Scripture urges us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. We cannot afford to not do so. That is, examine ourselves. So if we're going to hope in the Lord, we've got to accept the darkness. And then more briefly, we also have to anticipate the dawn. I want to draw our attention to verses 11 and 12 and 17 and 18 at this point. Verses 11 and 12 and 17 and 18 in many ways are probably from Isaiah's spiritual journal or diary. These are his own personal yet profound thoughts and experience. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of, this, way of his people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy and do not fear nor be in dread. And then verses 17 and 18. I will yakal for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children 
whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. To quote Fleming Rutledge once again, to be a Christian is to spend every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, but to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. To be a Christian is to spend every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, but to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. There is a darkness upon us, yet there is also hope within us. As the text continues from chapter 8 to chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this encouragement and this call to hope in you. We pray that you would give us courage to wait. That you would give us courage to embrace the darkness, even our own darkness. I pray that you would teach us that Advent begins in the dark, but it ends with the dawn. I pray, Father, that you would lead us out of this darkness into your light. I pray that you would take away the gloom ultimately and even presently, and that you would show us yourself in mercy and in grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.